If you have a copy of God's Word, please take it and turn to John chapter 17. John chapter 17. Finishing up the prayer of Jesus. And what we've learned is that Jesus is praying over his church, that they would be his hands and feet to a lost and dying world. But his prayer doesn't start for you and me directly. It starts with a prayer for the glory of God. And what we learned from that is that our lives are to be about God's glory, that when we're living for his praise, we unlock God's design and purpose for our lives. Last week, we talked about how that while we're designed for God's glory, we desperately need God to do that. It would be easy to think that we need to glorify God and that God is somehow out of the picture, that we can kind of do that in our own strength or our own ability. And Jesus makes it clear, no, you need God's preserving protecting, purifying work if we're going to live for his glory and praise. Today, what he's going to show us is that we are recognizing that the glory of God is not meant to be contained in our lives. The glory of God that he calls us to give him, the praise that we're called to give our king, is not meant to stay isolated or just kind of static in one place. It's meant to expand all over the world. I'm curious, how many of you have ever heard the name Candace Parker? How many of you know who Candace Parker is? Raise your hand. None of you do. I knew it. How many of you know who the Chewbacca mom is? Raise your hand if you know who that is. Ah, oh, some of you do. It's okay. You don't have to be ashamed. You can raise your hand. Uh, in 2016 of May... There's a mom in Texas who purchased a Chewbacca mask. You know Chewbacca from Star Wars, okay, the Wookiee? And she recorded herself putting this mask on and talking. Because when you put this mask on and open your mouth, it would make the Chewbacca noise, okay? And so she recorded this Facebook Live video one random Thursday in her car of her talking with this mask on. From Thursday when she posted it on Facebook to Saturday, over 100 million people watched it. So those of you that didn't watch it, you're the, the, you're the odd ducks, okay? You, you just didn't catch that video. How did that happen? How did some random mom, now I grant you, she has a contagious laugh, okay? If you watch the video when you go home, she laughs, and it's just one of those laughs that you can't help but laugh with her. But a hundred million people watched this. In fact, NPR and other news agencies actually started doing reports about her video. She went on national television on evening news outlets and, and, and talked about what she was doing. How did that happen? Well, the video that she posted, she had a friend that posted it to their wall and somebody else saw it and posted it to their wall and somebody else saw that and it it got spread and disseminated. And before long, one simple Facebook video was viewed by a hundred million people, went viral. What I want you to know about this passage of scripture this morning is that we have a faith that's meant to go viral as well. We have a faith in Jesus Christ that's not meant to stay contained. It's meant to multiply exponentially across 
generations and around the globe. I want to show you this from God's Word in John chapter 17, verse 20. Would you please stand with me as we honor the reading of God's Word in John 17, verse 20. John seventeen twenty, we read these words. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them, even as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I have made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. This is God's word. This is his holy, infallible, and inerrant word to us. Would you pray with me, church? Father, we pray in these moments that you would speak to our hearts, that you would remove distraction, you would open our minds to understand and our hearts to receive. Would you help us as we hear your word, not just to hear it, but to be doers. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. You can be seated. First thing I want you to see is that the glory of God is multiplying. Jesus expects his glory to multiply. Look in your Bibles at verse 20 and notice the three groups of people he discusses the word, his glory, should manifest itself to. Look at verse 20. Notice these three groups. Verse 20, he says, I do not ask for these only, that's one group, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. That's a second group that they may all be one just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world, there's three, may believe that you have sent me. John, as he records Jesus, identifies a progression, a multiplication that's supposed to start with his disciples, whom Jesus is praying with there. That's the these he's referencing in verse 20. But he says the disciples, their faith is meant to multiply out to a group that will believe in Jesus through their word. In other words, Jesus is understanding a day that the apostles would go out, they would begin to proclaim the gospel, and people would come to Christ. Jesus says, I'm praying for those people. Now, here's the tremendous news for you and for me. We are those people. Jesus is praying for every one of you 
in this passage of Scripture. In John 17, he's praying that the Word of God would multiply, that it would grow virally to the point that the church, 2,000 years later, would still be growing and recognize their task is to see it go to that third group, the world, people who have yet to hear it. One of the reasons I think this, this idea of multiplication is important is it's very personal to me. Um, I mentioned at the beginning of the service my son, who is sitting here in the front row, he was the one who likes the snow, um, in case you didn't catch that. My prayer for our family is that one day I would get to sit with my grandchild on my lap, knowing that his parents or her parents are passing on the faith that I gave them to the next generation. Amen, David? And then one day, if the Lord tarries and gives me life and health, that I could see my great-grandchildren in my lap, knowing that the faith that I passed on to their grandparents is being passed on to them. It's one of my dreams. That's one of my incredible aspirations in this life. Where do I get that kind of aspiration? It's in John 17. Jesus is praying for a multiplication of faith that is generational. It crosses lifespans thousands of years into the future. You know what's really cool to stop and consider? Jesus' prayer was answered. If you're a follower of Jesus this morning, you are the fruit of this prayer. But Jesus not only prayed generationally, that the, the word would multiply generationally, he also prayed for it to multiply globally. That it would span across the earth from a geographical perspective. And if you read the book of Acts, that's what happens. The disciples start in Jerusalem. They go out to Judea, Samaria, and then ultimately they go out around the world with the gospel. You and I are recipients of a faith that's meant to multiply and grow exponentially. Now there are two sides of the coin when it comes to multiplication. There are two dimensions to multiplication that we need to understand. There's a personal vertical dimension, and there's a communal horizontal dimension. The personal dimension is found in verse 23. Excuse me, verse 22. Look in your Bibles at 22. It says, The glory that you have given me, this is Jesus talking to the Father, the glory that you have given me, I have given to them. Now what that doesn't mean is that we now get to glorify ourselves. What Jesus is saying is the same way that he glorified the Father is now the way you and I are to live our lives. We're to live for the glory of the Father in the same way that Jesus lived for the glory of the Father. One of the ways that we talk about that at Riverview often is identity in Christ. 
that my worth, my value, my purpose, my sense of hope and longing rests in Jesus. And he says here that we're to live lives glorifying God, recognizing that he is our hope and our peace. So there's a vertical component. There's a life that I'm to live before God if multiplication is going to happen. But he also makes it clear that there's a way I'm to interact with others if multiplication is going to happen. Look in your Bibles at verse 21. Look at 21. That they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may also be in us. Here's the key phrase. So that the world may believe that you have sent me. We're to be people who are not just living out our faith before God, but we're also to be people that are passing it on to others. Now, specifically here, both in 21, 23, and also in 26, 25 and 26, Jesus says that what we're passing on is a faith that helps people understand that Jesus has come from the Father. What that means is that we have to help people understand that God is pursuing his people. That God is not leaving us stuck in our sin, though we've rebelled against him, though we've rejected his authority. God has sent Jesus to pursue us. Jesus doesn't just pursue us. The way he comes after us is the penalty that you should have gotten that I should have received because of my sin, Jesus takes that on himself. So here's what real multiplication looks like. Real multiplication happens when I'm living out and passing on my faith to others. Real multiplication, what it looks like is me living out my faith, my identity is in Christ and in him alone, but then passing that on, speaking that to other people through the influence God's given me. I believe that's what's in this text. One of the illustrations Jesus uses in the Gospels to help us understand this is a farmer. It's the parable of the sower. Jesus talks about a sower who goes out with some seed and begins to scatter it in different places. As he scatters at different places, some of the seed falls on thorny, rocky, hard ground, and it really doesn't take any root. But one of the four seeds that he describes, one of the four pieces of land that the seed lands on is good soil. And when the seed lands on that soil, Jesus says its roots go down into the ground and it takes up and brings forth life. And Jesus says, from this good soil comes 30, 60, 100-fold growth. Now, here's what Jesus is saying when he describes that. He's saying that inside that tiny seed is incredible potential. Inside that minuscule seed, some of which you can hold many in the palm of your hand, is the potential for exponential growth. 
Because while that seed goes into the ground and produces an organism, that organism has the potential to produce hundreds, sometimes if it lives long enough, thousands of seeds, each of which in their own right have the potential to produce organisms that then in turn produce thousands of seeds. And the point is, these thousands of exponentially growing plants all trace their origin back to one tiny seed you can hold between your thumb and your finger. Now here's what's so powerful. Jesus Christ, through the power of his spirit, has put a seed of the gospel in our hearts. And the seed of the gospel he's put in our hearts is meant to grow as we invest as we live out, as we pass on our faith to others, it's meant to grow exponentially. Generationally, but also globally. What I want to talk about for the rest of our time this morning is how that's supposed to happen. How is it such that we are to be people of multiplication? And here's the statement that I would offer just to kind of sum up this message and what I believe God's word has to say. God's word, the glory of God, it begins to multiply through or by means of fellowship with God and fellowship with the church. The way the glory of God spreads virally around the world is through fellowship with God and fellowship with one another. I want to show you this in God's Word in John chapter 17, starting with fellowship with God. How does it multiply? First, through our fellowship with Him. Look at verse 25 and 26. And listen to how Jesus describes knowing Him and knowing the Father. Verse 25 says this, O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I have made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known, that the love with which you have loved me may be in them, and I in them. Jesus says when he was on this earth, he made God known to the people. Jesus was fully God, fully man. He explained God. But he says, even after I leave, I'm going to continue to make God known to my people. And we know that what Jesus is referring to is the work of the Holy Spirit through the Word of God. That God's going to continue to show us who He is through the Word and the Spirit. The great news that you and I have been told in this is that we have an opportunity to know God personally and intimately. We have the opportunity and the privilege to know who God is at an intimate level. Jesus says this kind of ongoing work is something that actually will never end because he said it's not only going to be something that happens in the present, This kind of revelation is going to continue into the future. Look at verse 24 in your Bibles. Father, I desire that they also whom you've given me may be with me, notice this, where I am, 
to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. Jesus here says he's going to continue to work in us even after our death or when he returns because we're going to be with him in his presence forever. And the reason we know he's talking about that is because he describes his glory like the glory that he had before the world was made. The love the Father and the Son and the Spirit had within themselves. He's going to display that glory to us. So here's the most glorious, incredible news you and I could ever be given. We have the privilege of knowing our Creator intimately and personally forever. Not just for a limited period of time, not if we don't make it mess up or make mistakes or just do things just the right way. If we are followers of Jesus, we can know God personally and intimately forever. And the reason that's such a big deal is because the one who knows you the best loves you the most. The one who knows you better than you know yourself, the one who knows your deepest, darkest secrets, the one who knows things about you that nobody else knows, that God loves you and is making it possible for you to be with him. One of my great concerns as your pastor is that the grace of God can get old to us. I'm, I'm concerned about that. I'm concerned that what I just said, if we're not careful, rings a little hollow. So let me try a little harder here, okay? Think about this. Think about what you've been forgiven from for a moment with me, will you? What have you been forgiven from? We've got liars in here. Raise your hand if you've ever told a lie, please. Raise your hand. Okay, and if you didn't raise your hand, now raise your hand. Uh, How many of you have ever been angry or hated someone? Please raise your hand. Okay. How many of you have ever disobeyed your parents? And if Seth were here, he could raise his hand to. How many of you have ever looked at something someone else had and wanted it for your own? Raise your hand. You coveted things. By your own admission, all of you deserve death. One of the ways to make the gospel real is to remember what I've been forgiven of. You and I, if you're a follower of Jesus, we have been forgiven of some terrible, horrible things of which all of us deserve death. And if it wasn't enough that Jesus forgives us and offers his life for us, he then now stands before you today to say, I'm making it possible for you to know me personally, intimately, forever. This is the God who says, look back in your Bibles at verse 24. Father, I desire that they also whom you've given me 
may be with me where I am. Your Savior, who died for you, though we were rebelling against him, wants to be with you. He wants you to be in fellowship with him. And here's the point I would make about this passage of Scripture. The glory of God that we're speaking about, it multiplies when my desires shift towards God. The way my desires become for God is when I begin to fellowship with Him. Real, intimate, close fellowship with God shifts my desires for God's glory. The glory of God becomes my desire when I fellowship with God. You see, one of the great challenges for the Christian is making sure that what I want to do is the right thing. I don't always want to do the right thing. Let's just do that again. How many of you always want to do the right thing? Nobody should raise their hand. Good. How many of you sometimes want to do the wrong thing? Raise your hand. Well, how do you want to do the right thing? How do you want to do what you should want to do? The way that God changes our desires is by close, intimate fellowship with Him. One of the reasons this is hard is because we are not good at relationships anymore. I think one of the strengths and one of the things I'm excited about with our Latino brothers and sisters, is I think they do community much better than we do. Those of us that have different backgrounds, we don't do relationships very well. I I remember teaching my college class at the community college and having students that were sitting from where Adam's sitting right here to where I'm standing who would rather text me than talk to me. They would rather send me an email than have a conversation. Call me crazy, but that's not a healthy way to relate to people. We've got to learn to talk to one another, but we have a hard time with that. Part of the reason I see it really affecting our culture, one of the ways it's doing that, is through our inability to have civil disagreements with other people. The strategy For most people today is if you disagree with me, I'm going to demonize you and dismiss you. I would only want to be around, this is the cultural mindset, people today really only want to be around people they agree with. Part of the way we see this really challenge the church is when we stand up and make statements that are countercultural it's easy for people to demonize and dismiss us. So for example, when we say that we believe marriage should be between a man and a woman for life, many people will be angry because they say, well, you're against marriage equality. And my simple answer to that is, no, I'm not against keeping anyone from happiness. What I do believe, however, is that when we leave God's design for intimacy and sex, when we leave God's plan for marriage, we invite harm into our lives. So the reason I believe what I believe is actually because I'm trying to keep people 
from harm and destruction. But in our culture today, we never get to that place. Because the minute I am labeled as somebody who's not for marriage equality as it's framed, I'm automatically categorized, demonized, and dismissed. This cuts both ways, though, okay? It's easy for Christians for us to have a chip on our shoulder. We have to be okay having conversations with people we disagree with. Because here's what I think will happen. Part of what we've got to get back to is if I talk to somebody, I'm going to realize they're a real person. (laughs) They're not just somebody I can just lob things at and hurl things at. It's much easier not to know you and to demonize you than it is to try to get to know you and understand why you believe differently. Christian people should be the people who are different in our interactions with others. We should be the people that can tolerate being around people we disagree with because we actually care about them as people more than we care about their agreement on a particular political issue. This is hard for us. I had people, I know it's hard, even though some of you aren't really like, you're, I can tell you're like resisting. I had people in the first service say, this is where we are. I don't do this well. I know this is hard for us. Relationships are challenging, and it's one of the reasons why God anchors his covenantal love in the picture of marriage. One of the reasons why God anchors his love for us in the picture of marriage is he wants us to understand how important close, intimate relationships are. What is marriage? This cute little blonde here in the front row says, My wife, Shelly, we're married. I told the first service this, I'm fully convinced, had she known some of my idiosyncrasies and weird ways of doing things before we got married, she probably would have nixed the deal. (laughs) And don't laugh too hard, because some of you out there are probably in the same boat. You leave your toothbrush like that on the sink? That's just the tip of the iceberg, okay? Okay. The point is, marriage is letting someone with vulnerability into our lives so that we can begin to relate to them with an attitude of trust and care. You see, the way real fellowship happens with God and with others is with time and with trust. We really don't know what it means to have real community anymore. Technology, the speed of our lives have made it really challenging. What is the real fellowship Jesus is talking about here in verses 25 and 26? It takes time with him. You will not know God unless you spend time with God. Impossible to know him without spending time with him. It's also impossible as you spend time with him to really grow in your relationship with God unless you trust him. Let me tell you why I talk about trust a lot. Because all of us are trusting something. All of us are trusting something. And what I'm doing when I come to the word is I'm wanting my trust in God to displace my trust in In myself. This is true for believers and non believers alike. 
if you're not a Christian today, what we hold out to you is a call to spend time with God, trusting what he says about you. Trusting that you're broken and in need of his grace. Trusting that the only way to be forgiven is repentance and faith in him. Non-believer and believer alike, the way that we grow closer to God, that fellowship that, that multiplies his glory around the world, is time and trust. Now, one of my concerns as your pastor when I talk about this is some of you who might hear what I'm saying through the, through the lens of burden. Oh man, you're telling me I've got to do something else I've got to read my Bible. I've got to spend time with God. I mean, Spencer, come on. I'm busy. Here's what I would say to you. If you don't like spending time with God now, what makes you think you're going to like being in heaven when you're with him for an eternity? I say that with all the love in the world. Do you know that I love you? I do. But I, I talk to people who hear it as a burden. Don't hear it as a burden this morning. Hear it as an opportunity. Hear it as a privileged position God has given us to know Him because it's in knowing God, it's in spending time with Him and trusting His Word that God displaces my affections for the wrong things and begins to redirect my worship for the right things. Let me just go ahead and land the plane on this. If time with God, if the glory of God are things that are repulsive to you, you may not be a Christian. And I take no pleasure in saying that to you this morning. But I want you to know a Christian is someone who recognizes that time with God is a gift and a privilege. How does the glory of God multiply around the world? It multiplies through fellowship with God. Number two, as you see there on the screen behind me, it also multiplies with fellowship with one another. Look in your Bibles back up to verse 21. Jesus says that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may also be in us, then watch this, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Skip down to verse 23. Watch the same pattern. I and them and you and me, that they may be perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you loved me. Now here's what's happening here. Last week we saw Jesus talk about unity talked about being one, and similarly to this passage, he describes the unity of the church in terms of the Godhead, the Trinity. In other words, that the way that we're united should parallel the way God is one within himself. And I tried to make that simple last week by saying what that looks like is that we only have one agenda, Jesus Christ alone. Not my kingdom, not your kingdom, Christ's kingdom. But here in this passage, Jesus begins to talk about unity 
a little differently. He describes our fellowship with one another as a key component of testimony to the world. Both in 21 and 23, he says that unity is meant to be this foundation from which a testimony emerges to the world. And here's how that works. When a group of people come together, a church, our unity in Jesus Christ is to be so clear that people looking at it from the outside in cannot fully understand it rationally. There's no rational explanation for our unity other than Jesus. Now here's why that's exciting for us this morning. As I look out around this room, we have people listening to this message in Spanish. I see some of our Latino friends listening to it in both. I know Marcos last week was listening to it in English and Spanish to see what kind of job Orel was doing back there. And he did okay, right, Marcos? He did okay. Okay, good. All right. We have different cultures in this room. We have different backgrounds come from different parts of the country. But what unites us is Jesus. And what this church is meant to be as a body is that while we come from different places, even speak different languages, because of Jesus, we come together. And that's a testimony to the world where they go, why are you people getting along? You people are so different. How can you all come together? And we say it's because of Jesus. Because we're moving towards the same goal. Part of what happens in that kind of fellowship is the Bible describes an image. The book of Proverbs uses the term iron sharpening iron to describe the kind of fellowship we're meant to have. Where because we're all moving together, because we're all moving towards the same goal, we encourage and spur one another on to what God has called us to do. I mentioned this pretty little blonde on the front row here, my wife. When we first started dating, Shelly was training for a marathon. Now, why anybody would want to do that is beyond me. Does anybody know how long a marathon is? 26.2, don't forget the point two miles. And when I met her, she had a mentor in her life where every week, multiple times a week, they were training together. And what I discovered after spending some time with my wife is that her partner in training was essential. She would tell you, and I confirmed because I always ask permission before I share family illustrations, she confirmed that she did not believe she would be able to have done that without somebody running with her, encouraging her, spurring her on. Every single step is a step of psychological warfare, right? Where you're deciding you're going to keep going. And because of the relationship she had with this mentor in her life, she was able to finish that race. The church 
is very similar to that. We are all running a race, and we need one another. Here's the point I would make to you about this passage. If the glory of God is going to multiply in this church, we are going to need one another. We need each other. We need to encourage one another. At times, we may even need to confront one another. Taking a few moments of pastoral privilege this morning, I'm going to take another one right now. One of the things that's apparent to me is God is and has been blessing Riverview Baptist Church in a mighty way. Just in, in the way that God is moving in our church, some of the recent things that happen as we're coming together, I see God's hand moving mightily in our body. And that's important that we stop and give thanks for that. This church has been through a lot. Some of you know more about that than others. But the fact that we're where we are today is only because of God's grace. Having said that, I know that as God's blessing and as God's grace is poured out in more and more measure on this church, at the same time, spiritual warfare will intensify. One of the ways the enemy will come at us as a church is trying to sow seeds of discord and disunity in the body. One of the things we've got to watch very carefully right now is that we do not begin to bat for the other team. I don't know how that's translating into Spanish. You may want to tell me that later. Aurel may jump me. That we don't begin to, in a way that we didn't anticipate, begin to cause division in the body and to begin to work for the enemy. Unity in a church does not mean the absence of disagreement. We're going to disagree. Had somebody call me two weeks ago, spent 30 minutes with me on the phone telling me why he was concerned about some changes that we're considering as a body. Brother expressed those with humility, and I could tell he was genuinely concerned about me, even though he vehemently disagreed with me. There is a way to disagree where we stay gracious humble, and kind. The answer in unity is not to suppress disagreement and say, well, I'm just going to push it aside. I'm just going to not deal with it. I've got this problem. I'm, I'm going to leave it alone. No. At the same time, the answer in unity is not just blowing off, blowing off steam and, and shouting and fighting about every small, petty thing. Real unity happens when because of Jesus, we can agree to disagree on some things. Real unity happens when I hear someone share something with me I don't need to share with anyone else. Real unity happens when Christ is what all of us are running to. 
And my prayer for us as a church, especially how many times Jesus prays for unity in the body in this passage, is that we would see our unity as something that's precious and meant to be protected. So let me ask you that question as a point of application. Do you believe that the unity of this body is precious and needs to be protected? Do you believe that our unity is a testimony to a lost and dying world that we've got to maintain? Some of you this week may get a phone call, may get an email, may get a text message that's very unassuming, but I cannot tell you how many times things get taken and twisted and they turn into things with fangs and tentacles that never were intended to be that. Because someone, rather than just praying for that person, decided to pick up the phone and pass it on to someone else. If we're baptizing gossip in the name of prayer requests, we're going to have problems. If we're baptizing gossip in the name of bearing our burdens with one another, we're not serious about the unity of this church. Sometimes, guys, it's just better to keep our mouths closed. James tells us, to be quick to listen and slow to speak and anger. <laughs> he says that, he actually does say that in both places. The, the truth is, unity is something we've got to protect. And God knew this. And so what God decided to do is he said, I'm going to give you a perpetual reminder of the unity you're meant to have, and he does that through the Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper is God's way of saying, remember what's really important. Remember what you're really about. And as you do that together as a family, recommit yourself not only to your devotion and commitment to God, but also your devotion and commitment to one another. Because this is a meal of remembrance of the gospel, if you're here today and you're not a Christian, we're really glad that you're here today. But we're going to ask you not to take this with us because we believe this is a meal for believers only, people who've repented and trusted Christ. We're going to keep, by the way, if you've got a listening device, we're going to keep the translation going during the supper. One of the reasons I'm excited is this is the first time we're going to take the supper together as a new family of believers. But I want you to know that as we take this, this is an opportunity for us to recommit ourselves not only to God and to give thanks to Him, but also to one another as we commit to the unity God calls us to. Would you please pray with me? Father God, we thank you for this day and we thank you for your kindness and grace and mercy in our lives. And God, I pray as we take this meal together now as a body, God, I pray that we would be people who are giving thanks to you for your goodness and grace 
and we would also recommit ourselves to one another as a body, that we would be unified around making you known. God, would you help us do that now as we take this meal? In Jesus' name we pray, amen.